0: Hi, Church, and thanks for joining us today on this uh, coronavirus Sunday. I know it's a bit unconventional, but we are trying to follow all of the guidelines that the professionals have given us, and we're taking our cues in many ways from our government leaders and from our school leaders. We will be serving our school partners and helping them with lunches and food that would typically be delivered through the PATH project. We have a meeting on Tuesday with all of the principals in our cluster to talk about how the Sugar Hill Church can continue to serve those families. And we'll let you know that, that information as those days kind of roll out over the rest of the week. But today, I want to talk with you about Matthew chapter 5. We, uh, we gathered a couple of weeks ago, and Bobby talked a lot about our attitude, our B-attitudes And then last week, we talked about salt and light and how we share that in our life. And today, I wanna talk with you about one incredible subject that's such a big deal in our lives, and that is how we deal with anger and how we deal with retribution and revenge. I know you've never been there, but I've been there where I thought I'm gonna get him back. Well, beginning in the greatest sermon that's ever been taught in chapter five of Matthew's gospel, Beginning in verse 38, Jesus is teaching specifically and personally about what we're to do about revenge and retaliation. He says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that makes sense, right? Then he goes on and says, but I say do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and give them the other cheek. If you're sued in court, and your shirt is taken from you, go ahead and give your coat as well. And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two. Wow. Then he throws down the hammer and says, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. What does an eye for an eye mean? Most of the times uh, when people use this term, they mean payback. Almost every movie that's ever been built with good guys and bad guys, they're talking about retribution. This happened to my family, so I'm going to get you back. Today, the concept, the idea of an eye for an eye means retaliation. It means retribution. And it appears from reading in Matthew 5 that the Jews in the first century also functioned that way. Now, the law, what, how did that affect them at that time? Because if we can understand the context of what it meant to those people, it might be incredibly important to the context of how we live that out today. The Lord specifically condemns retaliation and personal retribution in the law of Moses. Listen to what God said. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your Lord as yourself. I am the Lord, meaning that's just the way it is. There's nothing gonna be different. Now, years ago, there was a true story of a guy by the name of Lucian who had done a great service for the state of Kentucky. He had, as the state said, gone beyond the call of duty. And one day he discovered that an old boyhood friend, a buddy of his back in elementary school was serving an eight year sentence and he was well into those eight years and it might be longer. But uh, Lucian went to the governor who said, Lucian, you can have anything that we could give you, just ask. And he said, I'd like to be able to get my buddy Sam out of jail. Would you pardon him? Well, the governor said, well, here's what I'll do, Lucian. If you'll sit down and spend two hours with this man in the warden's office, if you still feel like you will, that we ought to pardon him, you let me know. So sure enough, Lucian goes to the jail and he meets with Sam, it was about 15 minutes, and then a few weeks later, he goes back and he spends two hours, like asked by the governor, and he said, you know what, um, Governor, I think I'd like for him to come work for me, come live with me, and the governor said, great, Well, after you spend the two hours, let me know. So Lucian and Sam spend two hours inside of the warden's office, and uh, Lucian says, Sam, I I know you're here for a long time, and I know you feel like you've been wronged, but, I believe that the governor will give you a pardon if I simply ask, and I'd like for you to come to work for me and live with me. Sam went up and looked outside the window and came back, looked at Lucian and said, I I don't think I want to take that deal. He said, because when I get out of this jail, the one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get the judge that sentenced me, and I'm going to get the witness that pinned me, and I'm going to kill them with my bare hands. Yikes. This is not a man that's ready to be put back on the streets because as soon as he got out of there, he was gonna get some retribution. He was going to take vengeance. Well, Lucian, of course, after hearing this, said to the governor, I I understand now, and I'm so sorry because he is my buddy and I wanna do what I can, but that man doesn't need to be pardoned. Think about that a man that could have had his life back but chose to remain in prison, the one thing he wanted more than anything, more than freedom, was revenge. That is what our heart as humans looks like. Sam lost the opportunity out of anger and revenge. Now you might say, well, Chuck, that's one thing to look at. I've never been sent to prison. I haven't had to deal with that. You know, I I, ha- I have had some uh, dealings with some folks who took some vengeance for things that weren't even intended. There was a uh, older lady who uh, was a part of a men's women's group and this women's group had gotten together a uh, gathering but they forgot to invite her. It was purely an accident. They sent a young boy on the morning of the event to go tell her, hey, we'd love for you to have. And she said, well, it's too late now. She said, I've already prayed for rain on their event. Don't you know that person? I think I do too. It is against this spirit of revenge that we find Jesus speaking this morning as as we continue examining his pointed illustrations of true righteousness and the verses about self-righteous teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. To get the big picture of what's going on here, this is one of those sets of verses that honestly can be taken out of context pretty quickly. They are uh they are scriptures that that have a tendency for folks to take a passage and use it for how they want it to be rather than as it's intended to be. These verses have been used to promote passivism, conscientious objections to military service, lawlessness, anarchy, even to the fact that Christians should be pious doormats and a host of other things. Uh, Did you know that the thesis behind Tolstoy's War and Peace comes from his misinterpretation of this passage? The result was that he advocated the elimination of police, military, and other forms of authority as a path to his utopian society. He believed that even crime should not be punished based on a partial quote of Jesus, resist not evil. Well, that's what it looks like when you take it out of context. We have to be incredibly careful when we have the interpretation of any passage because it always depends on context. The big picture, which is set here, the context, of this passage is the contrast of true righteousness with self-righteousness. And so Jesus is not giving new commandments which if kept would make someone righteous. This is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not saying, I wanna add to something. He's clarifying. Jesus is marking out the character of what it is to have a changed heart. Jesus is not changing the Old Testament law. He is emphasizing the spirit of the law the spirit that had been lost in rabbinic tradition. In other words, each of these illustrations, Jesus is clarifying what the scribes and the Pharisees had totally messed up because they wanted it to serve their good. Sound familiar? A little bit maybe like today's political world? Jesus gives beautiful examples into the characteristics of the Beatitudes being playing that played out in specific situations. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted the Mosaic law. The phrase eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is found in the Old Testament in three places. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. In each of these passages, the context is the just punishment that should be given by civil justice, the system, to someone who has committed a crime. Now, we all get that part right? But this law was a restriction requiring that the punishment match the crime. Take note of the word restriction. The purpose of the law was twofold. First, it prevented excessive punishment based on personal revenge and retaliation. Human, man's basic sinful nature is seen in the desire to find revenge. If we receive an ounce of injury, we want a pound of revenge. You you see this even in little kids. One kid pushes another kid, the next kid slugs somebody. We see it on a ball field. It's always the second guy that gets the flag thrown. We see it in political nations where one nation is offended and and another retaliates and greater offense becomes outright war. Second, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 19, it was to curtail further crime because, listen to this, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. In other words, it's just like punishment today. It is to curb further crime. The principle of an eye for an eye was an equitable law because it matched the punishment to the crime. It was a just law because it restricted men from their tendency to seek vengeance beyond what the offense deserved. It was a compassionate law because it protected society by restraining wrongful, vengeful conduct. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, being the uh, truly elite of the religious world there in that first century, had twisted this law into meaning that when someone offended you, then you were required to take revenge upon them. They committed two errors in doing this. First, the restriction on revenge was turned into a mandate to retaliate. A negative directive was turned into a positive injunction. And secondly, they advocated the matters to be taken into one's own hands rather than referred to civil authorities. And then Jesus comes along and he corrects all this mess. What Jesus teaches in verses 39, 40, 41, and 42 is in contrast to this teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it is only by keeping that in mind that we'll understand his message to us. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees had determined to create religious law and Jesus had come to complete the Old Testament law. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Now that phrase causes us to ask one simple question, what? We get our answer by examining the four specific examples in the text and by looking at what Jesus and the apostles do and what they teach throughout the rest of Scripture. What then does Jesus mean not to resist evil? Remember again that Jesus is contrasting the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, which taught that if someone did something wrong to you personally, then you were obligated to avenge an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the evil that we're not to resist is the personal evil inflicted upon us by the ungodly. You see, Jesus's four very specific illustrations demonstrate what he means by that. So, if you look at the text, I think you'll find all four of these are highly contextual to today in 2020. Number one, he addresses the attack on our personal honor. First, the evil committed against us are attacks on our personal honor. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other side and give him the other cheek. The fact is that it's the right cheek that would seem to be just the common form of speaking in which the right is generally before the left. However, it's interesting to note that in order for the right cheek to be struck, get that, either the left hand would have to be used or the back of the right hand. If someone used the back of the hand to strike you, it even adds more weight to the reason that someone would slap your face but it's not for bodily injury. You see, the slap, much like today, is an attack on your dignity, not a personal physical attack, or it'd be with a fist. You see, a slap to the face isn't to physically harm, but to demonstrate contempt for the person and demean their honor. It's a sign of extreme disrespect. Even more so in that time, Then today, but even today, we would consider that as an extreme attack. Now, watch this. Jesus' instructions to us is that you want to demonstrate the righteousness that is in your heart because of the presence of God's Spirit. And you, even though when you are personally insulted, maligned, and treated with contempt, you'll turn the other cheek which symbolizes the non-avenging, non-retaliatory, humble and gentle spirit that is in your heart if you're a follower of Christ. That is the demonstration of true meekness. We see this in the life of the Lord Jesus. While he strongly resisted evil that was directed at others, he never sought vengeance when evil was directed at him personally. You see, before Jesus goes to the cross, He was treated with great contempt by those in the court and later by the soldiers. They mocked him, they spit upon him, they beat him, they plucked out his beard, they crushed down that crown of thorns and yet he didn't utter a single word against them. Instead, it was father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Now, this is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 that we should follow Jesus in that way. He says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to whom who judges righteously. You see, the beautiful part of being a Christ follower is that when someone attacks our dignity, we have the ability to walk like Jesus and return like Jesus and act like Jesus and not defend the honor by retaliation. We are to place ourselves in God's hand, remembering who we are before him and his love for us. Did I just say retaliation? I know that's not a word. Retaliation. Number two, the attacks on our personal property are stuff. The second illustration that Jesus gives us concerns personal protection that was afforded by the law when Jesus says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. So in that day, the shirt was the inner garment and the coat was the outer garment, typically a a poor Jewish person. That's all they had. So if someone had a claim against you and wanted to sue you, the court could require that you give your inner garment as the only thing you owned. And they couldn't take the coat, but you could give the coat. You just have to have it back by sundown. Well, this is problematic, right? Because Jesus is now saying, if they come and they want your, your shirt, just go ahead and give them your coat. Whether they demand or not, just do it. And I think we look at that and we think to ourselves, okay, Jesus, you have totally lost it here. But in this example, Jesus tells us that a person who is truly righteous of heart is dependent on God so that he would willingly give up that which the court would otherwise protect in order to not cause offense with an adversary. I get it, right? It's just, okay, Jesus, that makes no sense. Even if you feel the claims are unjust, Jesus says, that even though he tells us that if you're taken to court, even if you lose the case unjustly, then demonstrate your heart And the righteousness, by not showing anger, seeking revenge, instead offers settle the dispute with that which is not required. It's better to be defrauded than to be resentful and spiteful. Number three, Jesus addresses the attacks on personal freedom. Now, here in America, I think sometimes we feel like, okay, we've got a monopoly on freedom. But Jesus' third illustration involves attacks on our personal liberty, And whoever should force you to go one mile, go with him two. Now, as Americans, we we can't even fathom this. But in the day, a, a Roman soldier, an occupying Roman soldier, the people who were the oppressors of the Jewish people, a Roman soldier could take his pack, and he could stop anybody. You're just out and about in your yard, doing your own thing, minding your own business. The soldier grabs you, pulls you out into the street, pushes his pack on you, and you are required by law to carry that for one mile. Think about that. Uh, working in your own yard, binding your own business, and this guy says, now you have to carry it. Uh, do you think you've got just a bit of resentment? Man, I can't imagine how unglued I would come. But by law, they had to do it. And Jesus says, you know, um, I understand that you're angry. I understand that they are an oppressing army. I understand that it is not fair that you have to do that. But watch this, even though Rome is occupying you, even that soldier, no matter how badly it may seem, Jesus says that a person that is truly righteous with a good heart, with Christ sitting on the throne of their heart, they won't seek revenge or even complain along the way. Instead, they'll carry even a despised burden willingly and with grace. Forced to go one mile, they'll go two. And remember that that really means four because for every mile out, you came back. When, when we're robbed even of our cherished liberties, it's better to surrender even more than it is to retaliate. That's Jesus. That is the way of Christ, which leads us to the fourth directive. When we face attacks on our personal possession, our stuff. The last example that Jesus gives is of personal possessions. He says, give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Jesus isn't telling you to lay aside our minds and become easy marks for those that don't want to work. In no way does the New Testament say, hey, let's just put everybody on welfare or let's just claim that it's a human right for us to have everything. The scripture is clear that those that do not work don't let them eat, 2 Thessalonians. But Jesus is attacking the material possessiveness that dwells so deep in the heart of man. When someone comes to us with a need and we have the means to meet that need, then that's what we are to do as followers of Christ. That is at the very core of Sugar Hill Church. We are here to serve the needs of many. The the issue, again, the issue is our heart. What's more important to us, the things we own, or how we use them to serve the Lord. And it is in that light that we're stewards of what God has given us. Again, Jesus is not telling us that we're to be subsidizing people who do not want to work, but we are to assess the needs of a person and and be able to try to meet that. That need may not even be the things that they're asking for, but it's what you can offer them. Hey friend, listen, I plead with you. Don't let a love for personal possessions rob you from serving and obeying Christ with them. Don't let getting burned by somebody you've given to in the past keep you from continuing to be generous in the future. Give what you give in the name of Jesus the Lord and let those you give to know that now they are responsible to God for what you have given them. Friend, listen, uh, I have had seasons where I've had much and I've had little, but what I do know is this. When the Apostle Paul summarizes what Jesus teaches here in Romans chapter 12, it all comes together. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will help. You will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You say, man, the burning holes on their head. It sounds like I'm killing this guy. Well, to the contrary. Uh, as, as has been erroneously taught, the coals upon his head is a blessing, not a curse. It is the recognition of the good. In all things, the person who's truly righteous from the heart is to be a blessing for all, even to evil people who personally attack them and seek to take away their honor, protection, liberty, or property. I pray that this is how the righteousness of our people in our community would be displayed. Friends, there will always be folks that are in need and there will always be an opportunity for folks who love Jesus for us to serve him as we serve those in need. This is why Jesus is the biggest deal in the world, in the universe and beyond. He has given us the opportunity of joining him in serving the world his way and bringing through him the world right side up. Friend, won't you run to Jesus today? He's ready to serve you and forgive you. You say, but but Chuck, all these things that you're saying Jesus wants me to do, I don't think I can do that. Well, friend, you're right. In your own power, you cannot. But in the power of Christ, when we function that way, when we react his way out of true righteousness, not self-righteousness, not out of religious law, but out of the presence and the goodness of God within our heart, then what happens is we have the ability to love people like he does. And when we do, we are more like him. And the goal for every believer is that we do every day, we do intentionally strive to live more like him today in this season of coronavirus and serving others. Remember that there are people who are going to struggle with one income, not dual incomes in their family. Children are going to be hungry. I urge you today to do three things. Number one, I urge you if you've never trusted Christ and you've never had the opportunity for the Spirit of God to reside in your heart so that you could live this way in peace, then I urge you today to call on the name of the Lord. And it sounds just like this. Jesus, would you come into my life, and would you become the boss of my life? I want to accept your death and your burial and your resurrection as payment for my sin. And I want to turn toward you. I want to stop living for me. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer and saving me today. Number two, I want to invite you to be a part of helping the North Gwinnett Cooperative. They're getting slammed with incredible needs. They need staples, lunch meat, bread, cheese. They need things like macaroni and cheese. They need things like peanut butter and jelly. I urge you, would you be so kind as to bring all of that to the North Gwinnett Co-op and serve them in bulk. They're in desperate need. And third, uh, I want to invite you to stay plugged in during this time of coronavirus and know that Christ can use you in a special way. Uh, It could be that during this time you have a unique opportunity to minister to your family because you're actually together. It could be that you have an opportunity to not show fear and not show the panic that so many are showing, but to recognize coronavirus doesn't sit on the throne of this universe, God does, and to trust him with everything and in all things. Friend, listen, it's been good to be with you today online and to have virtual church. We'll be back Wednesday for Sugar Hill Midweek starting at 7 p.m. And we'll stream that live and be able to share what's going on in the future and what we're doing to try to share in our community, love our community and continue to meet in a virtual way. Thanks so much for being patient with us. And thanks so much for joining us here at Sugar Hill Church online today. God bless you, my friend. I trust you'll let the Lord go before you and make a way and make your crooked path straight. I pray that you'd let him go within you and bring you peace and joy, fulfillment and contentment because he is always good and you are always loved. I love that part. And when days are difficult like that might be right now, I pray you'd be able to hop on his back and let him carry you through the middle of the mess that you're in only to set you down victoriously on your two feet. And wipe away your tears and kiss you on the forehead and wrap his loving arms around you so that you can hear your Savior say, eyeball to eyeball, my child, I love you. God bless you, friend. I'm so glad you were with us today. Go in peace, and
1: I'll see you Wednesday night. Well, hey, thanks again for joining us online. It's been a joy to be able to worship together. Be on the lookout. Check out our website throughout the week and our emails. For next steps, we have some unique gatherings scheduled for midweek, but we also have some online Bible studies that you can be part of. In fact, this last year, we shot a Bible study called Your Story Matters, and so I'm going to be posting a link to that. So if you're looking for a Bible study that you'd like to do within your home or with your neighbors or friends, this would be a fantastic one to jump into. It's been super helpful in my life and the lives of so many other people. One other resource I'll mention to you is called Right Now Media. Right now, media is essentially the Netflix of Bible studies, thousands of Bible studies available online for all ages and all topics. Swing by our website, sugarhill.church. Click on resources, and you'll find a a simple link to register for a free account that you and your friends can use throughout this time. But we're so grateful to be able to worship together. Be on the lookout for more communication from kids ministry, student ministry, and adult ministry. If there's anything that we can do for you, We would love to be able to do that. Just drop us an email at hello at sugarhillchurch.com. Hello at sugarhillchurch.com. Have a great day, and we'll see you back here soon.